Luke, Mission to the World. Bible's in the back if you don't have one uh, at all. Grab a Bible, take it, it's yours. Um, turn with me again uh, to Gospel according to Luke chapter 2. The study of Luke's orderly Gospel account narrative was ultimately given to Luke, we know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as God spoke. Scripture tells us, moving Luke along to give us his holy and infallible word. But also we'll see today that some of this also came from the mouth of Mary, the mother of Jesus. I believe that. We're told at the very beginning of this orderly gospel account, that the first chapter, that Luke's information was in part due to eyewitnesses. Mary was certainly an eyewitness. And the familiarity that we'll see today, as we read earlier, in the temple with Mary and Joseph. And next week, as we see Mary and Joseph leave Jesus at the temple and go home without him, uh, I believe it was told by Mary. Again, under the inspiration of Scripture, to, the, to Luke, our writer. Luke already said in chapter 2, verse 19, that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I believe he told her. She told him. And then again, Luke chapter 2, 51, we'll read, He went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. As after he went and left at the temple, and his mother, that was Mary, treasured up all these things in her heart. What an insight. We'll see some of that today as well. We're concluding this first section of the, the, the announcement and birth of two boys, John and Jesus. We see not only the parallelism, the, the familiarity, but also the emphasis. It was similar because Gabriel announced that John and Jesus, it was up to Gabriel to announce that John and Jesus would be born. Both boys we see were born uh, because they uh, were circumcised, excuse me, on the eighth day, and both boys were given their names on that day. Both boys are described as growing in grace and favor. Uh, we see Jesus' growth in chapter 2, verse 39 and 40. And verse 52 in John, we see in Luke chapter 1, verse 80. But with all the similarities, what we see in the emphasis that Luke wants us to see in chapters 1 and 2 is the Christological emphasis, the, the Christ-centered, the, the, the idea or the, or the reality of the person and work of Jesus. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He alone is the Holy One, the Son of the Most High God. He alone is the eternal Son of David who rules and reigns in righteousness as a king over the eternal kingdom. His life is introduced in these few chapters. In three titles, he's the Savior. He's the, he's the Deliverer. He's the Messiah. He's the ultimate anointed one. And he's the Lord Christ, indicating his sovereign authority over all things. Remember Jesus' birth. This narrative is set in the middle of Roman history in the reign of Caesar Augustus, who was given the title Lord and Savior. However, for Luke, the key figure is not some worldly room and power, but this weak and vulnerable child who is Christ, the Lord of all. The truth that makes, this truth makes Jesus' humble beginning really astonishing. And we've talked about it before, but I just think it's, so important, particularly this time of year, recognizing the humiliation of the incarnation of the Son of God who humbled himself to save sinners like you and me. Humility in his birth, humility in his life, his humility dying the naked agony of the cross. In some degree, just inconceivable to be fully comprehended. Our only response is to worship and to praise as we've done. And that's exactly what the angels do in chapter 2, verse 13 through 14. We saw that last week. 
And so did the shepherds, who were first to hear the announcement. And you remember last week in chapter 2, as they returned from Bethlehem after seeing Jesus in a manger, being with Mary and Joseph, chapter 2, verse 20 says, They, the shepherds, returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it was told them. And then last week, verse 21, we read about Jesus' circumcision. Some commentators place verse 21 with the preceding verses, with the whole birth narrative. Some commentators take verse 21 and put it with this temple presentation. Kind of a transitional verse. Pastor Ricky did a great job and ended on verse 21. But I, I think it's important that we look at it a little bit this morning as we jump into the text because Luke wants to show us something very important considering the beginnings, the humble beginnings of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll do that. Our scripture lesson again is 2.21 verse 39. What we'll look at first is this performance, this, this procedure of circumcision. One more time, quickly. Uh, uh, next we'll look at the presentation of Jesus as he's brought to the temple. We'll spend most of our time, point three, in the promise to Simeon. And then we'll get into communion and we'll talk about the prophetic praise of this prophetess, Anna. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. I want you to know something. I hope you have your Bibles open or apps open. I want you to notice something. Notice that six times in these verses that I read to you this morning, verses 21 through 39, Luke mentions something of the law of God six times through verses 21 through 39. Verse 21, circumcision was, of course, according to the law. Verse 22, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present them to the law, verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Verse 27, your eyes go down to 7, 27. Simeon comes in the spirit to the temple. Parents are there to do for Jesus according to the custom of the law. Verse 39, passage ends. When they had performed everything according to the Lord, Lord uh, the, according to the, the Lord, they returned into Galilee. According to the law of the Lord, excuse me, in verse 39. Law, law, law of the Lord, the, 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 the custom of the law, all that was required of the law, circumcision, eighth day, according with the obligation of the Lord. All law, that's all you see here in this passage, drawing our attention to, first to that day, that, that, that day that that sharp uh, knife cut away the foreskin of, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ as a baby, as God's covenant was sealed. It was the first shedding of the blood, really, in anticipation of the cross during Jesus' circumcision. Circumcision was a perpetual reminder of God's covenant that he made with Abraham, that he would give him a, 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 a large descendancy, and that the Lord himself, the Messiah, will come from his seed, from his offspring. Circumcision is a reminder of that. It was symbolically also to show that God's people would be cut off from the pagan world, that they would be consecrated to the Lord as part of God's covenant people. As many men could testify, and we've seen through history, when that part of us is consecrated, the rest of us, the rest of the man is usually will follow suit. The cutting away of the foreskin was symbolizing of Sin that was removed as, a, as a, a work of grace and the covenant of grace. 
and a reminder to walk in spiritual purity. Which raises a question. Why Jesus? Why would Jesus need to be circumcised? Why he was not born with original sin? He was perfect, spotless, sinless from the moment of his conception to the moment of his death. Why is Luke drawing our attention so many times, though, to the law of the Lord? He's doing it to show us that from Jesus' earliest days, he completely obeyed and fulfilled the law of Moses. He was completely observant to the Torah, or the Torah. The fact that he was circumcised shows that he was a true son of Abraham. He was, he was one with his covenant people. So yes, it is true that Jesus came to deliver his people from the bondage of the law. But in order to do so, listen, Jesus was born under the law. He obeyed and all its commands in order to redeem those who were under the law. Look at Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come in God's sovereignty and providence, God then sent forth his son, born of a woman, that's his humanity, born under the law, he's one with the Jewish people, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. The Lord Jesus was born under the law, and everything that the law required of Israel was required of Israel's redeemer, Israel's victor. So it was necessary that Joseph and Mary, as devout parents, to make sure that their son was following the law and was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law of Moses. He did not come, remember, to destroy the law. What? He came to fulfill it. So keep that in mind as we move forward. Jesus is born under the law so that he can redeem lawbreakers like you and I. He identifies with humanity, yet without sin, as he lives his life perfectly under God's standard. So when we get to this presentation in verses 23 through 24, we see more of the law going on. There's two things going on at least. Some people say three, but we'll look at two. There's two things going on in the presentation of Jesus, verses 23 through 24, okay? Number one, there's Mary's purification according to Leviticus 12, where, where a sacrifice is offered, where the wife, the mother would come to the gate, uh, the, the Nicanor gate, in the court of the women and for a sacrifice. Next is the presentation of the firstborn. So you have two things going on. Leviticus 12, Exodus 13. The, the, the presentation of the firstborn had to do with uh, the redemption price of five shekels for the firstborn child, okay? Very important. First, notice with me the purification ceremony, okay? It's the purification of Mary. It's found in Leviticus 12. And it states that a mother who is unclean for seven days after she gives birth to her son and is confined, therefore, for 33 more days, so 40 days altogether, and then she would journey to the temple to offer a sacrifice, a lamb and a turtle dove for the purification process she needed to go through. The lamb was a burnt offering. The, the turtle dove was a sin offering. If you couldn't afford it, according to the law, if you can't afford a lamb, you can use turtle doves, two turtle doves instead of a lamb and a turtle dove or two pigeons. That was the, the law of God. One, one pigeon and one bird for a burnt offering, and one had to do with a sin offering. Jesus and Mary, as we see in the text, offered the offering of the poor. Turtle doves or two young pigeons. That's what Luke tells us. Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph, as they go to the temple for their purification, weren't able to offer a lamb for the Lamb of God. All she and G Joseph could afford was two turtle doves or two pigeons. 
Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, will later say in Luke 9, the foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Luke is drawing our attention to the poverty of Jesus, drawing our attention into the reality that he was not born in a rich family. He identifies even here with those to whom he came to save, the humble and the poor in spirit, not the proud and not the arrogant. Unfortunately, people have built giant monumental uh, um, uh, theological positions over this verse. I don't think we need to do that. I think we need to recognize that it is the love of money, right, that is the root of all evil, that there are righteous rich people who give and love God. There are righteous poor people who, who serve and love God. There are, there are unrighteous rich people who serve and love themselves. And certainly there are unrighteous poor. It's not a matter of how much you have. But what Luke is pointing to is the humble beginning of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Mary needs to go to the temple, and she goes, and she offers a sacrifice. You see, when a woman, I don't know this personally, well, I kind of do, but when you give birth, there's, there's blood involved. And the outflow of blood, according to the law, makes you unclean, okay? They were unclean. Obviously, it looks, if you look at verse 22, it says their purification, Lord, they brought him up. So some people, you know, Joseph was there in the stall, right, helping Mary. Both of them got, became unclean, defiled because of the blood that they had encountered, it's not, this has nothing to do with personal holiness, I don't think, but ritual purification. And in order to go back to normal life in the home, in order to go back to the temple to worship, there needed to be purification. It doesn't mean that sexuality is sin. It doesn't mean that pregnancy is defiling or having babies is sinful. All sin makes people unclean, but not all forms of uncleanliness were due to a matter of moral guilt. According to the law, discharge of the body, particularly blood, touching a dead body as well, were a form of defilement in the Old Testament, making someone unclean, temporarily unfit to gather in community and to worship at the temple. It did, I, I, think, I think all these sacrifices did point to the reality of this continuation of the, the sinful nature being passed on from son to son. And also that Mary offered a dove as a sin offering for her purification indicates that Mary, the son of Jesus, needed forgiveness, needed redemption, and she offered up a burnt and, and, and a, a sin offering. But the principle through all this that God is teaching us and teaching them was that the unclean cannot encounter the holy. So she offered her sacrifice, and then and only then, as she's cleansed and shown cleansed, she could now enter into the temple where God dwelt. The unclean cannot touch the clean. In the presentation of the redemption of the firstborn, which is next, the firstborn son after this month, and you can see this combination being done here, is they would present the ceremony, be sacrifices as well, including the buying back or the redeeming of, listen, their firstborn son. You find this in Exodus and in Numbers. And Luke says, you know, he's got a Gentile audience, we talked about earlier, and he explains this to the people. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb, that's this redemption presentation of the Lord, uh, of the child to the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So Mary and Joseph are presenting him to the, to the Lord, part of the ceremony, part of the law. 
If you read the Old Testament, you read specifically in Exodus and Deuteronomy and in Numbers, you'll see that God repeatedly over and over says, the firstborn of your sons belong to me. Exodus 22. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the overflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons, you shall be given to me. It shall be given to me. And God repeatedly, over and over in the Old Testament, says that the life of the firstborn belongs to him and therefore it must be redeemed by a substitute. Numbers 18. Everything that opens the womb of the flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and their redemption price at a month old, that's why Mary's there, 40 days, you shall redeem, you shall fix at five shekels in silver. That's the ransom price. The redemption, and this, this will all make sense, I'll, I'll tie it all together. The redemptions of sons were part of Israel, a part of their national testimony. It was given to them in the context of Israel's redemption, Israel's escape from the Egyptians. When God's judgment came down on that 10th plague, and every single firstborn in Egypt died, whether it was Israel or Egypt, because when God's judgments come down, everyone's found guilty, the only ones who didn't die, the only firstborns who didn't die were those who took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Didn't matter whether you were a Jew or not. God told the Jewish people, sacrifice the Lamb and take shelter under the substitute. No one escapes judgment. And the right of redemption was a sign to everyone that the sons that you have will be saved by grace. It showed the people that Price had to be paid for sins. And the rescue was redemption. It procured the release through a payment. They belong to me. They must be redeemed. Although it's not mentioned specifically in this text, we know that that was part of the work, that that is part of the law which they followed. When God was pointing to is that every son, every family, who the son is the embodiment of the family, Everyone has a debt. Sin is real. Family, son upon son upon son upon son. As the sinful debt, as sinful human nature is passed on and passed on. And that every one of those children are, are, are forfeited unless they are redeemed. Unless a sacrifice is given, payment given, just like the Exodus. That's what God tells them over and over again. And that is why, if you're ever wondering, you read the story in Genesis 22, Abraham, when he was told, offer up Isaac on the mountain, he just took the boy and went up. You're thinking, really? If he had heard God say, take your daughter or take your wife, he knew that it was not of God. But God, Abraham knew, the ancients knew. We don't understand that, but the ancients knew. It was time. God was calling Abraham up. To give account for sin. That's why Abraham just took his boy. He knew what time it was. And up to the mountain they went. All these things, circumcision, purification, presentation, redemption of the firstborn are symbols. Ceremonials uh, uh, given in the Old Testament that point to man's sin, man's defilement, and a man's need for salvation, for redemption. It's a story over and over and over in Israel to point to their need. In fact, blood sacrifices, I know we like to talk about that, 
But blood sacrifices in the Old Testament were meant to show us the ugliness of sin. As the priest would come and there was blood flowing from the temples all the time. I hope you had breakfast. The throats were cut of the goats. The blood was all splattered everywhere. And you would walk away from this grotesque, bloody mess with the weight of knowing that what I deserve because of my sin. We don't understand that in 2022. Because sin is nothing anymore. It's shocking and grotesque because it's supposed to be. And so God makes it visible. People were separated from God because of their sin until the sacrifice was given. There could be no reconciliation. That pointed to Jesus. That pointed to the reality of our sin and our need for salvation. The reason these sacrifices were done over and over and over again because there was never a perfect, satisfactory substitute for sin under the Old Testament. Hebrew tells us that in the sacrifice there's a reminder of sins every year because every year this was going on. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The Old Testament practice of the sacrificial atonement was declared to be insufficient for the remissions of sin. But why? That's the point Luke is getting at. By showing the reality of God's Son fulfilling the law of God perfectly, even from birth, Luke wants us to see something very essential, critical, crucial about who Jesus is and how he came to save us. He, of course, did not need redemption. It was not necessary for him to be cleansed of sin, but it was necessary for Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. We'll see that in his baptism. And so his parents perform these law rituals. Remember, Jesus is without sin. Jesus is without sin. These sacrifices were not for his sin. The reason that the animal sacrifices were insufficient because it lacked identity with the offerer and the offering. So what Luke is trying to show us carefully is that Christ fulfilled the law perfectly, and that's why it's so important. Because the one who was circumcised, the one who opened the womb of Mary, and the one who was redeemed for five shekels of silver will be the one who will redeem, able to redeem you and me from sin, from death, and from hell. They had to pay five shekels to redeem the Redeemer who would one day redeem us by his precious blood. And the key to this testimony given in this narrative is the identification of Jesus with those he came to save, his perfect Obedient, life becomes necessary as a necessary piece, a necessary element to pay the price for our sin, you and me. So though he's without sin or guilt, he identifies with us and he came to, to save us through that sacrifice on the cross. Romans 8, for what the law was powerless to do in that it weakened by sinful nature or the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, that's Jesus, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and high priest, faithful high priest, in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's what Luke is making clear. That's why law, 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 law. He fulfills the law flawlessly, and therefore he is able to die for those who break it, like you and me. Again, Galatians 4. God sent forth his son, born of, born of a woman. 
He's fully man, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we can receive adoptions as son. And because he obeyed God's law perfectly, he's able to redeem lawbreakers. Got that? Because he was obeyed God's law perfectly, he was able to redeem lawbreakers. The promise of Simeon. Now, they're at the temple, and while they're in the temple, they meet two very extraordinary people. There's Anna, the prophetess, and Simeon, who sings a prophetic song, another prophet, as he sees the promise that God told him being fulfilled. Simeon, we see in verse 25, is uh, described as righteous and devout. Righteous meaning doing the right things. Devout meaning, you know, reference to his diligence and his, and his uh, vigilant devotion to God. Verse 25 says he's also filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how he can be righteous. That's how he can be devout. Filled with the Holy Spirit, imperfect verb, meaning that it was continually on him. And the, the Holy Spirit was continually working on him. It was the Holy Spirit that actually told him that he would not die until he sees the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. And this elderly man, at least many people think he was elderly. We really don't know how old he is. He's just been waiting. It says, oh, he's waiting, waiting, waiting. We think, all right, he's been waiting a long time. But he's a devoted follower of Christ, of God, and was waiting patiently, the Bible says, for the consolation of Israel. The consolation, this, this inauguration of the messianic king, the coming of the kingdom, the, the redeemer of God's people is waiting, waiting, longing for the nation's redeemer, for the peace and comfort of Israel. And he sings a song. Mary sang a song back in chapter 2, chapter 1. Her song was that God is mighty. God is the mighty Holy One. He scatters the proud and brings down those who are mighty in their own minds. Zechariah sang a song, God is the horn of salvation, the house of, of King David. He will sit on a reign and rule over the throne of King David. And here we see also the angels. They sang a song to the glory and glory, glory of God. Peace upon those with whom his favor rests. But Simeon saw this new title as we get introduced more to who Jesus is. He's the consolation. He's the comfort of Israel. You remember? Does that sound familiar? I hope it does. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Chapter 66 of Isaiah, as a mother comforts her child, so God says, I will comfort you and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. <laughs> Simeon's longing was not so much for the people to be delivered then and now, but for the salvation of God. And notice in the text that although God had spoke his word to Simeon and gave him the promise, you will not die until you see the anointed, the consolation one, the, the, the Christ, the Messiah. It's not a new revelation to him. Simeon knew the promises of the scriptures. He was waiting for the fulfillment of them. He was promised that he would, he would be alive, that all that would come true before he died. We don't know how long, as I mentioned, but we can only imagine his joyous anticipation as he came daily into the temple every day, waiting, waiting, and seeing couples coming with their children thinking, is it that one? Is it that one? That's a nice couple over there. Maybe it's that one. And then one day, moved by the Holy Spirit, goes into the temple. Joseph and Mary's there, do all that the custom of the law had required of them. 
And Simeon takes him in his arms. You could just imagine. <laughs> An old man walking over. Uh, can, can, I have your, can I have your son? Yeah, sure. Here you go. You know, I don't. Has him in his arms. Remembering all the promises that he heard all his life. All the promises of scripture of God saving and delivering them. Holding the one that was spoken about in Genesis 3. We read that earlier. Holding the one that was promised since Adam. Looking at his eyes. Seeing his little body. The one that all the prophets spoke about. The seed of Abraham. The son of David. Overflowing joy as the redeemer he's holding in his arms. He's like, I'm holding salvation. God revealed that to him like he did with Peter. You are the Christ. Really, Peter? You didn't get that. My father gave it to you. And here's this man filled with the Holy Spirit, seeing redemption of Israel that was spoken about for centuries in his arms. Mind-blowing. Family, but that's the picture of the gospel. Looking in faith to what to God, looking in faith to God to do what God promised to do, clinging to Jesus as the only provision for our salvation, holding tightly by faith the one who was promised to save all of mankind. What are you waiting for? What do you need so that you can say with the words of Simeon, I'm good, I'm ready, I can depart in peace right now. For Simeon, it was because he had seen God's salvation. That gave him rest. Anyone who sees Jesus by faith has rest and is ready for whatever comes. As he held Jesus, he began to praise God. Verse 29, he says, Lord, despotus in the Greek, sovereign Lord, now you are letting your servants depart according to your word. The word departs a military term. It's, it, 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 it's reminded of, of a person who has been standing watch all night long. And then the sun comes up and he's thinking, I'm done. I'm ready to depart. I'm going back to the barracks to get some sleep. To get some rest. That's the way Simeon feels right now. He's ready to go home. He's ready to be with the Lord forever. The long-awaited anticipation has been fulfilled. The watchman duty is over. As he held the Lord's Christ. And notice what he sings now. The offer of salvation is, is universal. Verse 31. Let me go back. Verse 31. That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. And for glory to your people Israel. Is that in verse 31? Can you go back would you guys? Verse 31. Simeon is saying, for years and years and years, as I mentioned earlier, the promise was given to the fathers, to the sons, to the daughters, to the mothers, to the daughters, from the families, to the family, to the children, to the children. Praying for the Messiah, uh, the Messiah's appearance. Now all God's promises are true. Jesus is the glory of Israel. Glory is a very important word, for, important for us, important for the Jewish people. It spoke of, of the infinite value, the, the holy reverence of God. God's Shekinah glory as it came down in the temple, as his 
face, his, his panim, his presence, showed his, his glory to Moses on the mount, the pillar of cloud and fire, the building of the tabernacle, again, the temple. It, it's synonymous with the radiant light of God saving, leading, guiding, protecting power and presence. He's the glory of Israel, fullness of Israel. But not only Israel, look what it says, light of the revelation for the Gentiles. It's not just for Israel. Again, we saw that in Isaiah all over the place. That the light has come, the light of the revelation of God, the Messiah, the, the, the redemption is for every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every kindred. Isaiah 49, 6. It is to light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you talking about Jesus, a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Simeon's word just uprooted this narrow-minded nationalism of that day, as it should our day. He's the savior of the whole world, the young, the poor, the rich, all ethnicities, Jews, Gentiles, Americans, Iranian, Asians, African-Americans. He's the savior of all. The whole world is covered in darkness and sin. But Jesus, the light of the world, has come to dispel the darkness, to shine the light of salvation into every dark crevice and every dark heart. Verse 33, they marveled at this. I mean, he's just, he gives them this, 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 this revelation, this, this prophecy, and it says in verse 33, and his father and mother marveled at this, and commentators are going, what, they didn't know what was going on? I'm like, are you kidding me? Can you imagine? 14, 15, I don't know. Like, since the angel Gabriel showed up in my house, I've been, like, marveling. I'm pregnant, I, you know, without sex, I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm on my way here. I'm, I'm like, this has like, got to be a lot for these families, right? They marvel at what, they, like, what are they going to say? Oh, Simeon, great prophecy, but we knew it already. I don't know why you're wasting your time. Like, no. Wonder must have just been exploding in their fragile human brains over and over again. And then in verse 34 and 35, thank you. Up to now, there's been joy. The birth of the Savior, joy, joy, every joy everywhere. Joy, 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 as we like to say. Now, all of a sudden, things get a little different. First real negative note we find. Simeon is saying, you know what, in verses 34 and 35, this young boy will grow up to be a man who's the center of extraordinary Conflict, division, and strife. Some of you know that. I know I do firsthand. How important it must have been for Mary to know that at right up front. Then seeing her son hated, scorned, rejected, the Passion Week, ending up with a crucifixion, says a sword would go right through her very soul. Again, commentators are, are kind of all over the place what that really means. I don't know. I just take it as like, I'm not a mom. I'm a dad. Can you imagine what it must have been like to watch your son being brought down and laid on a cross and nailed and hung? A sword would pass through my soul. Mother's pain. But Simeon also saying that this boy, this son, is going to be a dividing line. A fork in the road, man. A fork in the road. 
And based upon how you respond, look what it says. Some are going to fall and some are going to rise. The, the, the Lord Jesus was appointed. See that verse 34? Destined is the word. The child is destined to determine the fall and the rise of many in Israel. Some are not going to see the rise of glory of salvation. Some are not going to, to rise to the realities of the kingdom's blessing, the joy, the peace, the consolation, the prosperity, the righteousness. But they're going to fall. Peter picked it up when he wrote his second letter. He said, the stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, as Jesus. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Remember how the narrative, narrative began? Jesus shut out, barred, uh, out in the cold, in a manger, no room for the inn. He's rejected because he's opposed. That's what 34 is all about. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and a sign that is opposed. A sign that Jesus will be resisted. A sign that there will be those who speak against him. A sign that Jesus will not give everyone hope because they will reject him to be opposed. You know, opposition to Jesus comes in all kinds of forms. And maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're here because someone brought you or you're, for whatever reason you're here and you're still in opposition the main reason you're in opposition to the work of Jesus, of salvation, of submitting your need to his lordship, is because of your pride. It was because of my pride. It was because of my pride. We don't want to acknowledge our sin. We don't want to acknowledge our need for salvation. And we don't want to humble ourselves. And so we oppose. And the second reason there is opposition, look what it says in verse 35. That Jesus is going to come so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. See, Jesus shows up, his word is being preached, and what does it do? It, it reveals who we really are. And you know what? You, you say, I don't like that. I don't like to be told that. I, I don't want to hear that about me. Romans 1 tells us that deep down in our hearts, we all know we need God. The Bible tells us that we all know we should be obeying God, that we're sinners, and therefore we need him. And somehow we muster up this energy to justify our own existence whether it's money, whether it's, whether it's relationships, whatever it is, we have this self-justification issue going on in our hearts. The part of us that wants so desperately to think, no, I'm okay. And whenever we find to, to masquerade the longing of our hearts, we use it to suppress the truth and reject the truth, Romans 1. The part of us that doesn't want to hear about God's grace, God's mercy, and to bow our knee. We just tell ourselves, okay, we're okay, and we reject and oppose God's provision. Jesus Christ reveals the truth about our broken, rebellious life. Our self-justifying hearts reject them. But when those who are softened and recognized, and the Holy Spirit reveals their sin and reveals the provision of Christ, then we know. You see, we need to see that Jesus Christ was rejected in order to be received. He didn't just come to be rejected as a good example that we should just figure it out and say, I'm okay. No, he was rejected, hated, scorned, beaten, and crucified so that God can accept you and me. God accepts us because Jesus was rejected. Simeon says he will be a sign that is opposed because his opposition we are received. As the Savior hung on the cross, as the Father turned his face, as the wrath of what we deserve rightfully poured out on Christ. 
He says, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken so that we can be received. He was opposed so that we can be accepted. That's the gospel. Because he's rejected, we can be received. Because there was no room for him, we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And lastly, we see Anna. Let's just talk about Anna for a couple of minutes here. And then we'll go to communion. What a privilege, right? Just like Luke to talk about a woman. He loves to talk about spiritual ladies. Beautiful, wonderful, godly ladies. We'll see that all throughout the scripture in Luke. Right? There's Anna. Wonderful, rare opportunity to proclaim the word of God as a prophetess. She's a widow, the Bible says. Now, the commentators are not sure. Is she a widow for 84 years? Or is she 84 years old? I think she was 84 as a widow. That makes her about 100, 105. Okay? We know people that are that old. Never mind back then. What's the principle? I don't care how old you are. God's not done with you. Okay? No matter what our culture tells us about old age, God's not done with this godly woman who's probably 100 years old. Don't let your age discourage you. There's things you can do. You could pray. You could counsel. There's a lot you can do. Don't let age discourage you. She regularly participate in worship. It tells us here when the doors were open in the church, this godly woman was there. She fasted regularly, recognizing her total dependency upon God as her hunger, her physical hunger, reminded her of her, of her spiritual need for the Lord. She was a woman of prayer, it says here as well. Her name means favor and grace. It comes from the word Hannah. She's the daughter of Phanuel. You know what Phanuel means? Face of God. Here's a woman whose name is prayer, whose name is grace, whose, whose father's name is face of God, seeking, desiring, chasing, running, pursuing the face of God. She hungered for God and it showed. She was there worshiping day and night, not because she wanted favor from God, but because she had favor from God. Living out the joy of knowing him. Her works are the proof of her faith. She waited for her salvation. And she sees Simeon, look at verse 38, and coming up that very hour, she gave thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. God had stepped in and gave Anna this prophetic insight into the identity of Jesus. She recognizes him as the savior of the world that he would die for her sins, he would rise for her sins, he would suffer and be crucified for her sins. And as soon as Anna saw, she did what all of us should be doing, praising, giving thanks to God for the salvation of Israel, for the redemption of Jerusalem, the consolation of this woman's heart. Her age didn't make her bitter, her her age made her thankful. And she begins to praise God. And notice what it says in the text. She was what? Telling everybody. She began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. The redemption of Israel. B.B. Warfield writes this. There is no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christians' hearts than Redeemer. It gives expression not merely to our sense that we have received salvation from him, but also to our appreciation of what it cost him to procure the salvation for us. We just learned about redemption price. It is the name specifically of the Christ of the cross. He writes this, whenever we pronounce it, the cross is placarded before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ has given us salvation, but 
that he paid a mighty price for it, end quote. The news was good. Too good for Anna to keep to herself. She had to share with everyone she knew. Like the shepherd, she becomes the first evangelist. Her life was all about worshiping and witnessing of the God of redemption. Is that what our life is like? Is that what this Christmas season is going to bring? Remembering our redemption, remembering the Christ, remembering and witnessing to the glory of God. Salvation has come. Think about this. They only saw the baby. We see the empty tomb. They got a child in the promise of God. I get that. But we have post-resurrection and ascension. We see him not only in his birth, but in the work of the cross. Forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life. This little baby, the glory of Israel, light of the world, great divider of the human race, comes to us and says, where will you stand? There's no middle ground. Will you rest and trust in the Redeemer, put your pride away and rest in him, or will you oppose him and fall with many in Israel? As the band comes up, you guys can come on up, and we get ready to give, to take of the Lord's Supper. Let's, re- let's, let's family, let's remember Anna. She reminds us that as, as we give thanks for the Lord's redemption and we eat of the bread and the cup, not only to remember the work of salvation, the work of the cross, not only as a spiritual act where the Holy Spirit brings us into this mystical union with Christ, strengthening our faith, confirming our faith, but we take this communion to declare to the seen and the unseen world the gospel. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In the ancient church, when they would take the Lord's Supper together, they would end by saying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. I preach the gospel by the word. You preach the gospel when you take of the bread and you drink of the cup. Family, let me ask you, have you recognized Jesus as Savior? You recognize he's the redeemer who gave his life as a ransom Payment for your sins. If you're a Christian here today and you've trusted Christ, been born of his spirit, you've repented of your sins, you belong to him, the communion table is for you. It's not a King's Chapel table, it's a Christ table. If you belong to him, you're welcome. If you're not, that's, we love you, we're glad you're here. But it's for those who've already trusted Christ. Maybe today's the day you say, I'm going to trust Christ today. I believe that he died. The bread represents his body that was broken, the blood that was shed. He's my redeemer. If you're here and you're saying that to yourself, Uh, in prayer to God, you may partake of communion. The band's going to play. We're going to spend some time confessing and repenting of sin. The Bible says get your heart right. Not right in a sense perfect, but right just say what you need to say. Receive God's forgiveness for your sins, and then we'll celebrate together the Lord's Supper together. Okay, so we're going to come down, grab your elements, sit back down when you're ready, and then I'll come up and lead us together. Father, there are so many symbols and rituals and festivals in the Old Testament that are so beautiful. 
that point us to the ultimate one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful that Jesus lived that perfect life, fulfilled your law perfectly because we could never do it. And God, we're thankful that by faith, his righteousness is imputed to us so that we can be justified, made right, declared righteous because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Father, there may be some here this morning just struggling with that, still trying to perform so that they can be loved and accepted. God, we pray for them. That, Father, they will release that and just rest in your son's finished work on the cross. So, God, help us to confess and repent well, and then help us, Lord, to celebrate together the redemption of our Redeemer. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.